Welcome to a bonus episode of the IS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. When we started the podcast, we received a lot of positive feedback. We also got a couple of suggestions as well. One of these was to produce more introductory material for people who are new to EIS and related schemes. This is the first of these, where we're going to focus on schemes from the perspective of a new investor. To discuss this, we have Mark Brownridge from the EIS Association, who is an expert in this topic, as you can imagine. A second episode will look at schemes from the perspective of companies who are looking to raise money. We have a lot of information here for investors and advisors, so without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome back to the special edition of the EIS Navigator. Um, today, we are joined by Mark Brownridge, who is Director General of the EIS Association. Welcome, Mark. Good morning, Brian. How are you? You well? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing in lockdown? Uh, lockdown, yeah, so far so good. Yeah, I think we're day day 100 tomorrow, so uh, that's, that's a nice milestone to reach. Um, but yeah, so far, lockdown, all well, thank you. Good, good. We, we'll celebrate that. So this episode, we're really going to focus on introducing people to sort of the EIS and, and the other tax advantage schemes. But perhaps we can start by saying who you are and what the EIS Association is, and which is kind of why I've asked you on the podcast. Makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I'm Mark Brown, I'm Director General of the Enterprise Investment Scheme Association. So so what do we do? We're a trade body uh, for the EIS and the SCIS industry. Uh, and we have two, I guess, two main aims. One is to work with government and treasury and HMRC and the FCA and kind of fun and happy people like that around the legislation about how the scheme works and how it operates. And that's mainly based around kind of three key stakeholders, one which is uh, investors and advisors. Many more people know about how the scheme works from their point of view, how they can get into early stage investing. The other is companies themselves, also companies looking for funding, looking to get uh, their, their hands on their money to take their businesses forward and, and to grow them into the, the kind of unicorns and high growth businesses we all hope they will be. So trying to help them go on that journey. And then secondly, there's a whole middle ground of uh, lawyers and tax advisors, accountants uh, and, and professional people like that who are mentoring, supporting small businesses, acting on behalf of investors at the same time. So it's trying to bring all those different communities together in one place and in one space. So there's that side of it. Um, the other side of it is doing very much things like this, so kind of educational stuff around getting information around, out about the schemes, again, whether that's to investors or that's to small companies themselves. Um, so we do lots of webinars. Well, we have to do webinars these days because we're not allowed to do anything else. So we used to do uh, live events uh, and conferences uh, and good things like that. Um, so yeah, mainly online stuff these days, but certainly trying to get as much information out to um, particularly advisors at the moment, because obviously we know it's a difficult area uh, for investing in and trying to get messages out there about how we might go about doing that. So perhaps we'll uh, touch on that as we go through. Great. So it's perhaps worth starting at a high level and sort of saying we've got these various schemes and there's various phrases used to describe them. Perhaps you can say why they exist and what is, is the sort of the aim that the government's trying to achieve by creating them. So, um, so yeah, a bit of a history lesson, I guess, really helps kind of understand the background to it all. So the EIS um, came into being 25 years ago and effectively to try and help companies get access to funding um, at the time. And this might sound like we're talking about now because it's got the same uh, formats of what's happening today, really. But at that time, uh, small companies found it really hard to get funding. The banks weren't lending. It was tricky for companies to kind of find sources or pools of capital to get money into, the, into their particular companies, particularly 
at an early stage because they are riskier investor ventures at that stage. You know, banks didn't really understand or, or, or want to invest or have their risk appetite even to invest in those type of companies. So the government, uh, being perhaps a more forward-thinking government than today's one, uh, recognised this factor uh, and set up a scheme that would help them get funding. So it helps effectively kind of, I guess, really match up retail investors with small companies. So the idea was that if we can give retail investors uh, some tax advantages, some tax reliefs, that might incentivize them or motivate them to invest in early stage businesses. So saving us as government having to put that money directly into companies and, and the government's track record in investing in companies at that time certainly wasn't great. They're not good at kind of picking winners. They're pretty good at picking losers, but certainly not picking, picking winners. Um, so let's actually, let's leave that to kind of angel groups and fund managers to, to, to kind of do that due diligence and research process. But we can help retail investors along the way by giving them some tax advantages to try and get the money into those companies. So, so that's why uh, that's why it exists, um, you know, kind of rolling forward uh, 25 years. That situation has never really gone away in terms of banks not lending from SMEs. Uh, you know, we've gone a bit of a roller coaster here. So 2008, obviously, we had a financial crisis where we had the same issues then. So EIS became very, very relevant at that time again. In 2012, uh, same issue. So we saw the seed enterprise investment scheme come in at that time to help really, really early stage companies. So kind of back of a fag packet type companies, if you like, who are just literally getting started. Um, so that all the way through those 25 years, uh, EIS has had a good track record of helping fund small companies you know, almost year on year. And we've seen a rise in number of investors come to the market. So, so yeah, it's still, uh, it's still, I guess, in some ways, unfortunately needed because early stage businesses still need funding. There's still a gap there. To the market failure in that sense there. So the scheme, I say, continues in its format. Interested to see what's happening with coronavirus. I'm sure we'll touch on it later on about how the scheme or might be expanded or changed to, to try and get money into companies who have been debt funded or, or into new companies at this stage as well. But, but very much uh, we see it as relevant as it was 25 years ago. Yeah, I've, I, certainly my experience is that banks just aren't set up to lend to most of the sorts of businesses that, that we that we're looking at, it might be worth sort of expanding for a moment on the types of companies that generally we're investing in, because that's changed quite dramatically for a lot of companies, or a lot of investors over the last sort of three or four years. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so EIS and SEIS have always had kind of a list of excluded companies. So these are kind of no-go areas for EIS investments. And probably the obvious ones, uh, you know, finance, banking sectors, mining sectors, you know, these sectors don't find it difficult to get funding generally from banks and other institutions. So, so they're probably quite rightly excluded. So it, it's tended to be, over the course of time, uh, popular sectors have been tech, or certainly more recently tech. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. But it's been quite a wide, um, certainly industrial sector over the, last, over the last 25 years. And over the last, as you say, five or six years, it has kind of narrowed down a bit more towards tech and growth and innovation. They're the, they're the key words when you speak to Treasury and government these days. We had a kind of period there, perhaps um, seven or eight years ago, where the government wanted to focus a lot of money into energy generation and renewable generation. So obviously, we're trying to hit our green credentials, uh, trying to hit our um, G8, um, what's the word, G8 um, conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So they wanted to see a lot of money go into solar projects, into renewable energy, and they, they kind of opened up EIS and SEIS to be able to do that. So it benefited from rocks and bits and those guaranteed income streams. They did quite nicely with tax release alongside them. So, so they were successful in doing that, and arguably they were way too successful in doing that. So whilst they raised the, kind of raised the requisite amount of money they were looking for, they probably went over and above a little bit, and uh, companies uh, or fund managers started to find kind of ways to 
really, really sucked the risk out of EIS, and that was never the, really the point. As, as we said at the start, the point of EIS is, is risk funding. So every pound that goes into these uh, companies should be a pound that is at risk. And increasingly, we'll start to see whether that wasn't the case. So I think with energy, we saw a change where 10 years ago, energy, renewable energy assets were kind of this niche area, and they've yeah. gradually become more institutional. So that's yeah. probably had an effect. Yeah, yeah, massive effect. I think. Yeah, and we're starting to see that, I guess, coming through to so those companies who were yeah, funded coming out the other end. Um, and where they go next tends to be, as you say, institutional investors. So yeah, we kind of we kind of gone back to the future a little bit with the IS. Um, it's really back to those kind of companies that we wanted to get invested in 25 years ago again. And I say, particularly now, I think with coronavirus as well, they want to kind of have particular sectors where they would like to see funding go. So they're, they're not, from a policy point of view, they're not directing funds that way. But certainly from a strategic point of view, they would like to see funds, as I say, going to tech, growth and innovation, um, particularly, I think what's coming uh, for the next few years with, with the coronavirus or the post, post-pandemic post crisis in that sense. Yeah, we hear a lot of talk about this. The, the, the buzz phrase for the last couple of years has been the risk capital condition. And that sort of sets that sort of tone. So maybe we should sort of explain what that is. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're right. Risk capital condition came in a couple of years ago there on the back of the patient capital review. So Exactly what I was talking about a minute ago, really. But I think the government was fearing that EIS slowly but surely was kind of being, well, the risk was being taken out of this type of investments. You know, a, a classic solar generation uh, investment, for example, would have kind of the following constitutes. So it has EIS funding, so you're getting the tax reliefs. And I'm going to talk about those in a minute in terms of income tax relief. But then you're getting a guaranteed income stream from that in terms of, uh, say, bits and rocks, that those type of investments available to avail of. So all of a sudden, you kind of, you're kind of you're one pound at risk. Um, isn't one pound anymore because you've got thirty percent tax relief. You've got some guaranteed income on top, so that's probably another thirty, forty p. So actually, only about thirty p in your pound is at risk. So the government thought, hang on, EIS wasn't really set up to try and help these kind of sectors, uh, and we've kind of raised enough for the solar and renewables that we wanted to raise. Let's kind of row back a little bit here and see where we want funding to go and, and what type of companies should be getting funding through EIS and SEIS. And actually, we think it should be companies that are at risk. So companies that receive funding should be, for want of a better phrase, proper companies. Companies that are looking to grow, looking to scale, and that's where the risk to capital condition comes in, because that's what we want to see here. We want to see companies that have an intention, not just to kind of bumble along and perhaps set up two offices, but set up 400 offices and employ 6,000 people. And I guess what we're trying to do really is find the next Google or Facebook or Uber, you know, we want to find the next unicorns and high growth companies. Uh, and that's where EIS funding should be to try and help uh, shine a light very early on into those type of companies, because they're the type of companies that are at the most danger of not getting funding at an early stage. Uh, it, it takes a, a certain investor uh, with the right risk appetite, as I'm sure we'll talk about, to, to invest in those type of companies. Yeah, yeah, because the net effect of the risk to capital condition is that, as it says, there is some risk to the to investors' capital that they might lose it. And the tax advantages do sort of mitigate that. It's perhaps worth saying what the three schemes out there. So perhaps we could quickly describe what the three schemes are and perhaps in broad terms outline the tax advantages. We're not going to go into too much detail because there's plenty of information on the internet if you want to get the exact rates, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll give you a high level overview just now, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty easily done. So um, I guess really, you know, three schemes out there. So there's CDIS, uh, it's EIS itself, Enterprise Investment Scheme, and there's VCT, so Venture Capital Trusts. So they're each, if you think of them, probably the easiest way, the 
if you think of them as each trying to fund companies at a different stage of their development, it's probably the easiest way of thinking about it. So CDIS, uh, as the name suggests, uh, is very much the first money into a capital. So in this case, the first 150,000 uh, into, into a company. So these are the earliest of early stage companies. Uh, the, the definition of a startup, as I said earlier, kind of back of a bank packet type ideas that we're trying to get up and running here. So I mean, they um, have to be less than two years old. Is that right? Yeah, less than two years old. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and there's various other, as I said, all the various other conditions around what type of companies they've got to be. But yeah, if you think just at the moment, early stage, very new companies. Because of that realization, uh, and I say, SES came in, in 2012, so it's kind of the, the little brother or little sister to the ice. There's a higher tax relief for that. So there's a higher income tax relief. It's 50% as opposed to 30% for EIS. Other than that, the tax advantages are pretty much the same. Um, I don't want to talk about EIS and what they are for there. Not just, that's no differences. But so yeah, so you put money in SEIS. Next stage, uh, kind of a company's funding journey would perhaps would be EIS. So you you've perhaps got up and running. You've had that early stage investment. And SEIS tends to be probably your friends and family round or maybe a bit of angel investment. You might start to dabble in trying to get some third party investment. The EIS is probably moving you a little bit more forward. You're probably a little bit more established. You might might be starting to think about getting into revenue or have some early seeds of revenue. Um, so you might want a bigger fundraising, fundraising stage. So through EIS, you can raise up to £5 million um, to get you kind of really to that next stage, that next level. And you're probably moving on from friends and family into kind of the funds well. So you might be raising through uh, one of the fund manager. You might be doing it directly yourself if you have a, a good fund manager, a sort of investor base or angel investment base. So the tax rates here, as I say, 30% income tax relief. There's five tax rates, really, one of the most tax advantage schemes in the world. Uh, so you talked about income tax. There's two types of CDT. So you've got exemption. Um, so when you come out of the investment, there's nothing to pay CDT-wise. Um, you also get a CDT rollover, whereby let's say you've got another investment. Uh, the classic one probably property. You've got property investment. You exit out of that. You've got a CGT bill. You can then reinvest that CGT bill effectively into an EIS and roll forward again. Uh, and keep so basically, doing that. there's no CGT fair payable when you actually make the gain and that is deferred until you actually exit EIS and that's when the CGT is actually payable. That's right, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, so obviously there's um, a deferral in that sense. So it's only comes into being upon disposal. So yeah, a good financial planner will tell you that you would hopefully think that CGT rates would be lower at that time where you could uh, find a way of trying to find better CGT rate or to be able to make that. Well, hopefully you've made a return in the EIS. And... We'll make a return, yeah, even better still, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so we've done, IH... We're sorry, we've done ICA tax, we've done the two CGTs. Um, there's IHT relief, which is available through business relief. Um, so again, you have to be invested in two years to qualify for that. Um, and most EIS companies uh, are qualifying. Um, you, you're no part of it than me on this one, Brian, so I'll leave that one to you. But, uh, and the last one is uh, share loss relief. So, you do happen to unfortunately invest in a company that goes bust, there is a share loss relief available to you to get back some of the tax. So, so all in all, yeah, I'd say one of the most uh, tax complete packages for an investor, at least, in the world. Yeah. Okay. So you've got SEIS and EIS who the schemes are focused on individual companies and then you've got VCTs as well. Yeah. So what's the sort of outline of VCTs? Because they've got a couple of distinct features. So again, so uh, SEIS early stage, EIS perhaps a little bit late stage, VCT probably goes on to even your next stage. So type of companies wise that, that probably almost, almost certainly in revenue, probably approaching profit. Um, you know, their next goal probably is to get onto one of the markets or, or IPO. So it's a quite later stage in terms of investment time. 
So VCT has got very similar uh, tax uh, advantage set up to EIS. So 30% income tax relief. Um, slight differences on the CGT. You get a uh, dividend, which most you would hope CGT qualifying companies would get uh, a dividend payment, and that dividend payment is free from CGT. And income tax. Uh, and income tax. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you don't, however, get the, uh, the IHT relief on it, so there's no BR qualification for a VCT. Um, but you do get the share loss relief as well. So, yeah, similar in terms of the tax relief and setups. Uh, it's more kind of type of companies that you're investing into, which are probably slightly yeah. different. And, and that's something that I think that is perhaps more in practice than in theory. The types of companies that qualify for EIS and VCT are the same. The rules, qualification rules are the same. I think just VCTs, generally speaking, have larger pools of capital. And that allows them to sort of deal in perhaps slightly larger deals, which inevitably means probably more later stage than EIS. I mean, the way I see it relating to Silicon Valley is that EIS goes from kind of seed or seed plus to probably your sort of series A, whereas VCTs probably aren't really doing the uh, the seed so much. And then we're doing series, series A, series B within the constraints of the scheme. Yeah, and I think the two schemes have kind of moved slowly more towards each other, particularly over the last couple of years. Because as you mentioned, there is the capital condition. Um, a later stage EIS deal probably looks pretty much the same as a VCT deal. There's also something in the same pool now. EIS, the risk capital condition applies to EIS as much as a VCT. But actually, the type of companies they're both looking to invest in are pretty damn similar these days. I mean, the old days, VCT, you could do MBOs and uh, all those kind of things, but you can't do those so much these days. So uh, new money going into VCT will probably invest in many of the same companies that new money going to an EIS will. So, yeah, it's been interesting to see that kind of uh, movement towards each other. Yeah. yeah. So it's quite easy to talk about the upside of these. I mean, you're investing in companies, as you say, that we hope become the next Google or, or Facebook or even next ARM. I think that's that's classic UK success story. But clearly there are risks. And I think the risks within each scheme in broad terms are different as well. So perhaps we can talk about that a little bit and, and sort of say, what's the difference between these schemes from a risk perspective? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's, a, there's a general risk across all of the schemes and there's a particular differences in the type of schemes and the type of risks. So it's probably easier picking off that one first. So uh, BCT, I guess, uh, perception-wise at least, uh, I've probably been slightly, I'm kind of doing funny years for inverted commas here, <laughs> lower risk compared to uh, NEIS. I know you can't see that on the podcast. but uh, So yeah, BCT generally investing, uh, in, as we've said already, later stage companies generally investing probably across more companies as well. So VCT portfolio probably has 30, 40 companies, where NEIS one probably has 10 or 12. So You've got a kind of bigger mix or diversification mix there. I guess as well with VCT, they're probably slightly more liquid. Um, there are events where you can get your money back in certain circumstances, probably with a, a discount to NAV if you're going to do that, but you probably can get your money back at least, mm-hmm. even if it's not as much as you'd like. So um, shares from VCTs are listed on the UK Stock Exchange, the London Stock Exchange. They could be listed elsewhere, but in practice, all of them are on the LSE. Yeah, which obviously then, as, as you well know, makes them tradable. So, uh, which, which 
It doesn't happen, or certainly not as often, or very rarely, in fact, in the ice world. So the ice shares are not particularly uh, liquid in that sense. So, yeah, just looking at those differences there, you can see very quickly, perhaps, why VCT is seen as, again, using my funny years, less risky than the IS. It's slightly late stage, more companies, and liquidity, liquidity issue as well. So, so, yeah, again, if you're thinking in terms of risk, yeah, SEIS is probably the most risky. Because that, because of the stage of the company, as I said, is really, really early stage. Then you've got EIS, uh, and then you've got VCT. So if you're thinking of your uh, pantheon of risk there, uh, that's probably how it works out. I mean, there's a whole kind of wider issue around risk um, and perception, and how risk is personal to each investor. I could probably spend another couple of hours talking to you about that. I'm sure you like that, Brian. I'm not sure well, how many. I, I, I can talk for two hours too on that same topic. <laughs> so yeah, I've always, uh, yeah, personal perception about risk and, and how it relates, but. But again, for an advisor, I know that uh, having that conversation with um, clients is really key in terms of trying to work out you know, attitude to risk. I think particularly in this market, um, not so much even risk, it's capacity for loss. As you said, companies, we all hope that these companies will go on and, and be significant um, uh, returners to their investors. But yeah, just as likely, quite frankly, are that some will go bust, particularly in the current climate and what's happening. Look, you've got to understand if you're going to go into this stuff. Portfolio of 10, 12 companies in the IS portfolio, three or four are going to go bust. Hopefully two or three go stellar and the others will probably kind of bumble along the middle. And that's probably no different in the wider VCT portfolio. You're just stretching out the numbers a little bit. So, um, yeah, it's worth certainly having that conversation with your clients around capacity for loss and how do you feel about you know, portfolio of 12 companies, two or three going bust. It's not only that they go bust, but they go bust early as well. So you might have to have an awkward conversation with clients and say, well, you know those 12 clients? 12 companies we invested into, the two have gone bust and it's only six months in. So, you know, some advisors aren't comfortable with that. Uh, so you need to kind of work out whether your client is comfortable with that. Obviously, in the later knowledge, some of those companies will come through. But there's a bit of a psychology risk in terms of risk about um, having those conversations. Yeah, I, I, I think there's two things I sometimes say to people. One is if you think that losing money on, on investment is going to keep you up at night, this probably isn't the thing for you. because you are going to lose a little bit of money in some of the investments. Now, hopefully you'll make it up elsewhere. But if that sort of thing stresses you out, um, then maybe the direct investment is for you. I think in VCTs, there's kind of that intermediary layer, which perception-wise makes it a bit easier to deal with. Although, as you say, in reality, the underlying actions and, and what's going on in the company is actually the same. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, like, it's a whole, as you know, it's a whole psychology about risk. I'm just reading to, uh, Daniel Kahneman's book about risk. And, you know, very interestingly, he said about, you know, most people would rather lose 10% and try and risk gaining 50%. So very, you can see quite early on that people would rather not lose money than gain quite a lot of money. So BIS, that, that kind of encompasses that, and BCT, sorry, encompasses that in, a, in, a, in an investment nutshell very quickly. So, yeah, that, those conversations with clients are so, so important, particularly, I think, around, say, classical. So when it comes to EIS in particular, so VCTs, I think, are straightforward in terms of you have a VCT, they have an offer, you invest in VCT. But if you want to invest in EIS or SEIS, there's actually quite a few options for how you approach that. So how, how do you sort of view the, what the options are for, for investors? Uh, yeah, you're right. So VCT, it, it, the only kind of shop in town is uh, a fund. So you have to go to one of the about 12, 15 fund managers these days to invest in VCT. So you've got to go to one of them if you want a VCT investment. So EIC is a bit different. So you can you can invest directly 
So literally, this might be you as an advisor down the pub. Your mate says, oh, I'm setting up a company. Uh, I think you're going to get some EIS funding or SEIS funding. Do you want to invest into it? You, know, you can literally kind of hand him over a check there and then and get your shares into that company and get EIS uh, um, tax relief on top of that. So, so there's that. There's that route. So, so a lot of companies are raised through friends and family through EIS or SEIS to get their kind of first amount of funding. Or if you're professional investor or an angel investor, perhaps more to the point, you are probably looking for single company direct deals. So you literally got your ear to the ground, you know, have, a, have a deal flow or deal source of companies uh, and you're kind of sifting through them and finding ones you want to invest into. So but there is that option. That obviously is uh, probably the, again, the common riskier option. Uh, you're just investing in one company, the kind of all eggs in one basket type scenario. I guess these days we've got the kind of crowdfunding approach whereby, you know, you've got the seeders and the crowd cubes and you know, all the others out there who are doing it these days. Um, so literally you're going onto a website, you're kind of uh, probably going through um, an investor readiness type questionnaire about risk and capacity for loss that we talked about. Uh, and then you'll get a kind of window or a dashboard of, of companies that you can invest into. So you can invest into one or, or three or 10. Uh, and you can put 100 quid in, you can put whatever pretty much you like into there. So you're basically given a, a kind of sweet shop of companies to invest into. Uh, it's entirely up to you and you live and die by your own decisions about who you invest into. So crowdfunding has come along in the scene in the last few years and it's kind of raised quite a bit of money. Uh, I guess it's a little bit of the Wild West with uh, crowdfunding. It's good, the good, the bad and the ugly. I think there's some go on and some not so good things go on. But one of the things it has done, it has helped to kind of democratise uh, small business investing a little bit or early stage investing. It's giving investors a chance to look at some of these companies that perhaps only the funds or an institutional investors would normally see. So, yeah, as I say, the pros and cons, but it's there. So yeah. we'll move on. Um, I, 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 I think it's definitely buyer beware and people need to accept it's not taking what's presented to you, but doing your own diligence on top of that. Yeah, and then you've got to decide, you know, how, how qualified or how expert am I to be able to do that due diligence? You know, what do I know about small companies and investing in them? So, you know, you make your own decision based on that, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, finally, I guess if you're not comfortable with doing all of that, you can kind of outsource it to a fund manager. So there's, yeah, in the ice world, uh, probably about 40, 45 fund managers out there these days. You probably know the fund numbers better than I do, Brian. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think there's a little more now, <laughs> but yeah, depends, okay. depends on how yeah. you count them, I guess. <laughs> But with fund managers, great things about those is, as I say, you hand over your money and then fund manager invests the money on your behalf, effectively. So uh, uh, they take that decision out of your hands. You know, they're looking at, you know, most fund managers I speak to are looking at three, 400 companies a year and probably investing in seven or eight or 10 or 12. So, you know, the amount of due diligence and research they're doing into these companies these days is, well, horrifyingly high, I guess, from their point of view. And that's why some of the fees are in place to kind of cover those costs as well. But um, yeah, what you will end up with is a portfolio, very well researched, very well uh, due diligence companies uh, across uh, different portfolio sections and regions and, um, and different different continuums of uh, notices there. So, so, so yeah, fund managers, I say most of them, or some, again, there's a wide range of them. You said there's kind of 50 odd out there plus. Uh, some of them are Old established guards, some of the more new boutique entrants to the market. Uh, I think what we're seeing at the moment is a real kind of mix of entrants, which is, which is fantastic because we're getting a lot of different ex- ideas and experiences. You know, some people have come from tax efficient backgrounds of building funds. Some people have come from actual SME organisations or VCs and are coming down the scale a little bit to invest in funds as well. So there's a real mix now, kind of ideas and intellectual property around how you put together a portfolio. So. If you're again, if you're an IFA or if you're an advisor, look at this area. It's worth trying to get to look at as many of those as possible uh, and meet as many of those possible to kind of fit, 
find out which one works best for you and your clients in your circumstances. Yeah, I, I think if you're an investor, you will certainly find that there's some people whose approach chimes with you better. Yeah. So particularly, I've come across people who have interests in biotech or ESG issues, and there are specialists in those sort of areas. There's people doing generalist stuff as well. I think it's probably worth coming back to a point you mentioned before. You mentioned people will give you sort of 8, 10, 12. There's some as low as four or five investments. There's some people up to 20. It's still less than you would get in a VCT. And you know, I, I would argue that even 20 is probably not an adequately diversified portfolio in itself, but it can give you a step along to getting that. Yeah. But obviously you have the fees and we're not going to go into fees today, but yeah, the fees on these are not necessarily trivial. No, it can be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think what you can do with certainly on the diversification point here is, is build up that diversified portfolio. So for an advisor, I probably know different what they're doing with a pension portfolio or an ISA portfolio, investing across different funds and different sectors and different regions, et cetera, et cetera. You, know, you can recreate exactly the same thing with an EI portfolio. There's so many fund managers out there, as you say quite rightly, doing different things. So, you know, if you've got so the average investment into an EIS, uh, we know from the stats is around 50,000. So, if your client uh, or you have a client who's got around 50,000 to invest or got the tax liability, is probably more, more likely, then they can invest across probably four or five different fund managers. You know, they're probably getting, as you said, eight or 10 companies in each of those different four or five fund managers. So, all of a sudden, you've built up a portfolio across all of that perhaps 20, 30 companies. Uh, so that's a pretty good diversified model. Yeah. And certainly if you do that two years in a row, I think that's where you, a lot of investors will actually build up decent diversification. It's not going to get it for any single year of investment, but over the period of two years or maybe three years, that's when you build up a portfolio that's going to give you a good diversification. Yeah, and not just across uh, investee companies as well, but also across fund managers at the same point. So as you quite rightly say, all different, different, different things, different ways, different char- charging structures. Um, but th- at that point, as you say, after two years of doing 50,000 times two, you've got a pretty well sectioned out portfolio. Yeah. And I suppose the next step for an investor would be, or perhaps actually this step might even come before that, is how would this fit into their investment portfolio? Over their overall portfolio? You mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting at the moment, again, kind of on top of the coronavirus stuff, a lot of fund management groups, you know, I was reading an article by BlackRock the other day saying how they're kind of reassessing their portfolios and seeing where they've had uh, exposure over the last year or five years or 10 years. Uh, so it's a big kind of reassessment um, process going on at the moment. And a lot of them are saying that we're way too overexposed on some of the big companies, the FTSE 100, even slightly below that. What we need is a slightly more focus on some of the SMEs that are coming through. Um, and particularly at the moment, it feels like the government wants to encourage SMEs or to try and get the economy back on its feet. It feels like they want to feel like SMEs can really, really contribute to that and give us back some of the growth that we have lost very rapidly already and certainly feel like we're going to going forward. So, yeah, it seems like there's been a re-evaluation of this sector and there will be more money being put towards it. So as an investor who's got portfolio at the moment, um, particularly say in your pension or your ISA or just even your unit trust portfolio, uh, you've probably got a lot of exposure to, to a lot of those FTSE 100 companies and slightly below that. Certainly there is perhaps a possibility now or, or where you might want to reassess and say, look, can we get 
slightly more exposure to earlier stage investing um, in some of the companies that are coming through. Again, it's got to be up to your clients, got to be client-led. Do they have the risk appetite for this? Do they have the capacity for loss? Um, but yeah, it's probably a good time as any to go back and look at your portfolios and see where they are, what they're actually investing into. Uh, I know a lot, again, some institutional funds are, are reassessing their, their deployments at the moment. Um, it's probably no different from EIS, SEI, CCP as well. Uh, but it's a good time to just look and, and stop and say, look, how we want our portfolio position going forward. Because companies are changing very rapidly, as we've seen already. Uh, I'm sure funds are going to have to take that into account when they're making their investment decisions. So, but yeah, certainly a time of change, I think, from that point of view. Yeah, and certainly I've done quite a bit of work on how you could construct a portfolio that incorporates a venture capital aspect. And actually, it, they're not per, as, a, as an asset class, it's not perfectly correlated with equities. Um, so there is a diversification benefit and by bringing a, a, a relatively small amount of venture capital, you can actually get diversification benefits in terms of either increasing your return for the same level of risk, or if you want to keep your risk level constant, you can actually boost your expected return within that risk uh, sort of level. And depending on where that is, that proportion of venture capital might actually be higher than some people think. Because I know people float around saying, well, no more than 5% or 10%. And for some people, that's right. And for some people, it's not right. There's a scope to, to do very different figures within that. So yeah, I think it, that kind of 5 10% that you've mentioned there has been kind of the classic uh, classic misnomer in some way. There's no kind of SCA ruling around that or, or kind of anywhere, really, that says you know, it has to be 5% or 10%. Um, it's a bit, of a bit of a red herring in that sense. So... But yeah, just, just well, probably a good time to touch on the compliance points as well, because as I say, from an SCA point of view, there isn't a lot of guidance around this area and how you might go and invest into it. Um, there's a lot of good practice out there and best practice out there about having processes in place. You know, we talked about doing due diligence and research. Also, you guys do a lot of research on some of the funds. Uh, it's worth picking up some of that if you're going to be investing in this area to look at, you know, what these funds are doing and how they're doing it and how they put together and again, charging fees and all those really important things um but yeah certainly from a compliance point of view there's nothing stopping you if you haven't invested in this area um from doing so uh it's just having those those those, those uh, tenants in place or those pillars in place that you always need so knowing your client doing your proper risk assessment on those clients and then having an order to process around due diligence and why you chose the investment product you chose so that's no different from doing as i say your pension or your ISAs. it might be a slight increase in what you're doing at the moment but it's no it's no great undertaking to, uh, to do so yeah and and if you're an inv- investor investing directly then you have in some sense open field but at the same time there is this distinguished um, split between retail investors and sophisticated investors which is perhaps worth quickly mentioning because if you're not a sophisticated venture that does restrict your options a little bit doesn't it yeah, yeah, it can do. Yeah, so I guess this is where we come into non-mainstream pool investments of good old NMPI. So, so EIS, SCIS, DCTs tend to be classified as NMPI. So, as a retail investor, that's fine. You can invest in those types of investments. Single company deals don't tend to be. So, you need to be a sophisticated investor to be able to invest in those deals. So, so yeah, I guess this yeah. is where the crowdfunding you know, is. Yeah, I say, crowdfunding to that. Is, that's kind of caveat. Almost the first thing you see when you go onto their their web pages. Going to have to run through to, to be able to invest through those so you kind of self-certify yourself as a sophisticated investor now you can question some of the risk questions they're asking and whether they're, they're certainly not as good as the, the ones advisors ask their clients so uh, probably again as you said buyer beware in that sense but 
yeah, if you're a retail investor, if you don't, if you don't want to get too heavily invested into into it, you're probably best off just going into a fund uh, and letting your fund manager do the heavy lifting for you in that sense. Yeah, I think there's a good argument if you're new to the area, invest in a fund to get that diversification. If you then fancy getting more involved and you have the time to do or the ability or the experience to do that diligence yourself and want to get involved in that, then you can sort of do more of those investments on top of that. But then you know you're actually already have that sort of core diversified portfolio to do that. So that's one approach that people can take. Yeah. That's been a very quick run through stuff. I hope we've answered a lot of people's questions. If people have uh, further things they want to find out, where can they go to get more information? Well, obviously, Brian, they can go to the ESA website, which is www.esa, which is eisa.org.uk. So we've got a whole raft of information there. A lot of it is aimed specifically for advisors. And we have guides uh, about how to invest in this area if you haven't done it before, pretty much a step-by-step guide as to you know, the process that you, you might want to implement to, uh, to get into this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I know you guys at Harman do a lot of work on the research side in terms of looking at the funds and how they work, operate, uh, and even on the single company side as well. So, so yeah, there's lots of information out there. Say, as a first port of call, please do visit the ESA website because we do link off onto other yeah. sites as well. There is a use. wealth of information on there. And as you say, there's plenty of links to other sources where you can get detailed information, whichever topic perhaps interests you more. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mark. We very much appreciate you coming on and, and talking us through all that. And we'll probably get you back at a future date to discuss perhaps a, a few more things about what ESA does and, and the actual environment in more detail. But for the moment, thank you very much. Very happy to, Brian. Good luck with the uh, Navigator podcast. Thank you very much. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.